Trigger warning, this episode will feature content about sexual, physical, and mental abuse. Please enjoy one of my other episodes if you feel that these are too much for you to handle. I promise you that I have tried to deliver these stories in a sensitive as way as I can. Mixed with a little humor, it helps me cope. Whatever life has thrown your way, I as always am so grateful for your continued support. Now, let's get into this. Happy holidays, my darlings. This time of year can bring out some people's rotten side. Now, I have known St. Nicholas for a few centuries now, and he has kindly loaned me a few of his past naughty lists so we can see who in history has been on them. Today, we will go through four people who definitely received coal in their stockings. So hold on to your chestnuts and suck those candy canes to a fine point. These people will leave you everything but jolly. I'm your host, Joshua Waters, your not-so-evil queen. This is my podcast, Rotten to the Core, the Naughty List Special. Before we get down to the base of this episode, I wanted to thank everyone for supporting this podcast. Thank you so much to Jill F. on Facebook. She commented on my episode on Kenneth Parnell that she lived in an area where something similar had happened and thanked me for the respect that I gave. She ended with, Now to do a good deed to cleanse this rottenness out. Honey, you have no idea how much joy I got reading that. You not only liked the podcast, but you were putting out good into the universe as well. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Any new listeners can always follow me on Instagram at It's Rotten to the Core. It is available anywhere you enjoy podcasts. And again, thank you for returning to the sound of this voice. This was a very interesting episode to research. I was looking high and low for some naughty and rotten people. Let me just say that my browser history will never recover. Do not click on images. I did manage to find four people who stuck out to me the most starting with the worst and ending on an actual Christmas caper. These rotten people deserve far worse than the cold that they got. Get all cuddled up in your blankets and your fuzzy socks and grasp that mug of hot cocoa with both hands. The two we will first learn about here are some of the naughtiest people I have ever heard of. I introduce you to Carla Homolka and Paul Bernardo, the Ken and Barbie killers. The pair were serial sexual assaulters and murderers in Canada during the 1990s. Even worse, their first victim was the younger sister of Carla. Carla had a love of animals and worked at a vet's office. When she was 17, this passion for animals led her to a pet convention where she met Paul Bernardo, who was then 23. The two connected immediately and along with a love of animals, They also shared a passion for sadomasochistic sexual acts, with Homolka willingly acting submissive to Bernardo. That is a humiliating and degrading form of sexual acts with another person. Soon, Paul was asking Carla if she cared if he started to sexually abuse other women. And once she agreed, he then started his career as the Scarborough Rapist. Sidebar people, 
This would be the time you would want to end the relationship and contact the authorities. Sexual curiosity is normal in any romantic relationship, but come on. Being alone is a lot better than murder and prison. If a dude is coming to you and asking permission to kidnap and sexually assault others, run, girl, run! Tell your friends, tell your family, tell your neighbors, tell everyone to stay away from them. Carla had a younger 15-year-old sister named Tammy, and it wasn't long until Paul had his eyes set on the young girl. At a family Christmas party, Carla had the intent to literally gift her sister to Paul as a subservient sexual slave. The couple started to give Tammy drinks spiked with halcyon. For those who don't know, because I sure didn't, that is a medication used to treat insomnia and make the patient fall asleep and stay asleep. To seal the deal, they then put a rag laced with halothane, which is used to induce and maintain anesthesia over her mouth until she was unconscious. The couple then began to sexually assault her together, and even when she vomited, they continued until their desires had been fulfilled. It was only then that they realized that Tammy had died, choking to death on her own vomit while her own sister and her boyfriend violated her body. It was just the beginning, though. Tammy's death was deemed accidental due to the drugs in her system being overlooked during the autopsy. Well, it didn't sit well with Paul that Tammy died. He was promised a new concubine, and he still demanded one. He even blamed Carla for her sister's death, saying she gave her too many drugs. He was utilizing his full arsenal of manipulations. Gaslighting, aisle two, right next to victim blaming and guilt trips. Their next victim was a young, unidentified Jane Doe who was another slave Carla stole to give to Paul. They then kidnapped a 14-year-old girl named Leslie Mahaffey, who they also assaulted sexually and murdered. They then took it a step further and put her remains into cement and threw her in a lake nearby. Believing they had found true love, or as close to it as they could feel, I don't believe either one of them has the capacity to experience love, the couple decided to marry in June of 1991. Paul's ego was so fragile that he wrote the wedding vows himself, refusing to be called husband and wife, instead selecting man and wife to assert his dominance, noting that Homolka would love, honor, and obey him. These type of men honestly baffle me. <laughs> they always demand to be obeyed and worshipped. I honestly see them as scared little creatures who must prey on their victims because no one with any common sense would give them the time of day. When I was younger, I fell for a narcissistic man's tricks for several years in my 20s. I allowed myself to believe I deserved the treatment he gave me. If it wasn't for my good friends, brother, and mother, I would never have found the strength to leave. Well, make him leave, actually. I was naive, but not enough to put the house in his name or let him convince me to commit crimes like Carla. After they tied the knot, the couple continued their sadistic murder spree and kidnapped, tortured, humiliated, sexually assaulted, and murdered 15-year-old Kristen French. They then disposed of her body in a shallow grave in some woods. These poor girls, they weren't even viewed as human beings by these two murderers, just as some 
sick means to their twisted sexual gratifications. By 1993, after claiming physical abuse, shocker, the couple decided to split up. Shortly after, Paul would be linked to being the Scarborough rapist through DNA. Worried that she would be caught as well, Carla confessed to a family member of their crimes and hired her a lawyer. After entering a plea bargain for only a 12-year sentence, Carla testified against Paul, claiming she was just as much of a victim as any of the other girls. During the trial, videos surfaced that showed the real story, though. In them, Carla can be seen laughing and enjoying herself while their victims were tortured, making it clear to the court that she was not the victim she and her lawyer were attempting to make her out to be. Shame, Carla, shame. You know what you did, and I hope the voices of all your victims play in your ears to this day, honey. Since she was released in 2005 under multiple conditions, she then changed her name to Leanne Bordelais and moved to Guadalupe. In 1995, Paul Bernardo was found guilty of all nine charges against him, including two counts of first-degree murder for killing French and Mahaffey. As of 2022, he continues to serve a life sentence at a maximum security prison in Millhaven, Ontario. That was the tale of our first naughty duo, the Ken and Barbie killers. Watch out for each other out there, guys. I've learned that it is necessary to know who you are before you go into a relationship. Know that you deserve to be loved with dignity, respect, and appreciation. And that it will be reciprocated back to you. Well, we started with, in my opinion, the worst. These other names are definitely on the naughty list, too. So, let's see what they did to deserve it. The holidays bring friends, family, and all your loved ones together. For most mothers, the thing that brings the most joy to their faces is watching their children enjoying themselves. I think of my own mom and how hard she worked and struggled to give my brother and I a Christmas every year. I know even at a young age that her joy mostly came from us. Thank you, Mom. Could you imagine, though, a mother who let her heartless jealousy completely ruin her daughter's life? I'm not talking about snide remarks about her appearance. This mother took away everything from her daughter. This next tale covers Louise Monnier. Madame Monnier was known in Parisian high society for her charitable works and even received a community award in recognition of her generous contributions. Today, she is known as the mother of Blanche Monnier, who was locked away in an attic for 25 years until 1901, when she was barely recognizable as a human. Most children grow up and their parents accept that they must find their own way in the world. Occasionally, The parents just can't accept their child's choices, and usually, it involves a falling out. Well, Louise decided to take it a step further. It all started when Blanche came of age to start to receive suitors from all the upper-class young men that her mother chose. She was described by acquaintances as a very gentle and good-natured young girl. But, like most teenagers, Blanche wasn't interested in the suitors her mother was arranging for. her. She had her eyes set on an older lawyer who wasn't from an aristocratic family, and he made only a meager living. 
Louise refused her daughter's plea to marry the man she loved and forbid her from continuing their relationship. Remember, this is a time when women, especially from affluent families, really were viewed with only one purpose. They were meant to learn to be sophisticated, docile, and submissive wives and mothers. It was their duty to strengthen their family's name, wealth, and prestige, all by marriage. Louise took her daughter's actions extremely personally. It wasn't just a daughter marrying someone her parents didn't approve of. It would have been viewed as a failure to Louise. She failed to properly train her daughter to obey, and it would have been a great embarrassment to her. This is all my attempt to try and figure out how a mother could do this. I'm not saying it's justified. Just putting myself in the mother's shoes for just a second. I couldn't do something like this, even to a stuffed animal. Putting myself in the mother's shoes gives me more of an insight into if she was suffering from a mental affliction or if she was just heartless. I think it was more of the latter, and it seems that the brother inherited it as well. Social embarrassment and failure just weren't acceptable for the lady of the house. She felt that her daughter needed more education, and I am not talking about reading and writing. She had her son Marcel, who was supposedly a respectable lawyer, help her drag Blanche up to their attic. It seemed that Louise wanted to keep her daughter locked up there until she was basically broken, like a wild animal. She wasn't prepared for the willpower of Blanche, though, and as the years dragged on, she included more and more methods of torture to bend her daughter's will. Sadly, 25 years will pass before Blanche would ever see the light of day again. Sidebar. Let's give Blanche her credit. Girl, you had one of the toughest and strongest willpowers I have ever heard of. I, for one, would have given up long before you were rescued. Her determination to survive is incredibly inspiring. You might also ask, did anyone notice she was missing? Yes, they did. But as time passed and the family just continued on with their lives as usual, people assumed Blanche had been sent away for schooling or married off quietly. I mean, who would have guessed this gruesome truth? During those long years, Blanche never gave in. Even after the man she loved died, she still never bent to her mother's will. Aside from her mother and brother, her only company was the rats, fleas, and lice that were all attracted to the room. Finally, in May 1901, an anonymous letter was delivered to the Attorney General of Paris. It is still unknown who sent it. Many believe that it might have been a boyfriend of one of the servants in the house after she let slip what was happening. He was so horrified that he sent the letter. There were, of course, servants in the home, and they were even aware of what was going on, but no one ever helped her out. They all had great fear of retaliation from Louise. It would have meant an end of their livelihood, and Louise would definitely tell other families not to hire them. That's if she didn't have them arrested for fake theft or worse, killed. She must have been a very intimidating woman for none of them to tell authorities for that many years. The letter stated that an affluent family had a dirty secret. The details of it were so shocking that the attorney general investigated it immediately. Even with all the gory details in the letter, when police arrived at the Monnier estate, they were hesitant to accuse. They had a spotless reputation, after all. Authorities were allowed to search the estate, but 
nothing seemed out of sorts until they climbed closer to the attic. As they got closer, they noticed a putrid smell coming from further up. The odor kept getting worse as they discovered a padlocked door. They quickly realized something was wrong and immediately smashed through the door. On this next part, I'm going to try to be as descriptive as I can on it. I want you to truly grasp the conditions that this poor soul was trapped in. Once the door was open, the men walked into the dark room engulfed in the smell of years of rotten food. Human as well as rat urine and feces and body odor. They noticed a boarded up window first and quickly busted it open for some air as there was no other light in the room. But as the sunlight filled the room for the first time in over two decades, their eyes took in the frightful scene. They noticed the smell was from decades of rotting food scattered across the room and rats as they scurried into the dark corners. Taking everything in, they finally noticed a dilapidated mattress on the floor with what appeared to be a woman, naked, chained, caked in years of her own filth and emaciated beyond any recognition. The smell was so strong that even with the window open, authorities couldn't stand being in the room Blanche had been locked in 25 years for longer than a few minutes. They immediately rescued her and sent her to the hospital. Louise and Marcel Monnier were immediately placed under house arrest. Staff who worked at the hospital with Blanche, who was now 52, stated that she was completely malnourished, weighing only 55 pounds, or 25 kilograms. They were surprised to find that she was lucid and, God bless her heart, she said how good it felt to breathe fresh air again. The public was so outraged that a massive angry mob surrounded the Monnier estate. It was such a large and threatening crowd, or her own guilt for the atrocity she committed, that it caused Louise to suffer from a heart attack. She would die 15 days after her daughter was freed due to complications from it. Being that he was a prominent lawyer, I couldn't find any information on what type of punishment the brother received for his role in his sister's torture. It appears that he escaped prosecution, possibly due to his family's name, his career, and, I mean, their money. He is quoted as saying that his sister was free to leave the attic whenever she wished. He never claimed any responsibility for his involvement in the crime. I believe karmic debt will get him, though. Blanche Monnier did suffer lasting psychological damage such as anorexia and schizophrenia after her two-decade-long imprisonment. She lived out the rest of her days in a French sanitarium, dying in 1913 at the age of 64, unaware of person, place, or time, living completely in her mind, just like she must have done all those many years. I can't get over Blanche's determination to live. May her story inspire us all with the strength to fight all of our battles. She will be remembered by me, at least, as one of the toughest women in history. She was a beautiful soul trapped in a family full of rotten apples. Alrighty, everyone. I saved the easiest to handle tale for the end. This one happened close to Christmas Day and by a Santa Claus. No, not the real one. Don't worry. 
Here comes Santa Claus, here comes Santa Claus, ride down and rob your bank. Guns a blazing, they thought they'd be on their way. Sirens ringing, people screaming, calling out his name. Then they found him, bound and gagged him. He was dead by the next Christmas day. Yeah. I often think in rhymes and I just couldn't help myself. It's the holiday season. I am optimistic, but as I've said before, life is all about balance. So I have a somewhat morbid sense of humor. This robbery took place on the 23rd of December, 1927 in the town of Cisco, Texas. It is still today the largest manhunt in Texas state history and is known as the Santa Claus Robbery. The man with the beard was named Marshall Ratliff, and he, along with a few of his friends, managed to rob a bank right before Christmas. Well, kind of. Marshall was an ex-con who was recently in prison for another robbery, but was paroled right before this one. Some people just never learn, do they? He was 24 at the time of his death, and not much is known regarding his early life that I could find. He seemed to be an average man of average intelligence who was conditioned to a life of crime. Possibly from a lack of proper support growing up, but this is just my own speculation. What is known is that he was born in Texas and was arrested multiple times for breaking several laws. This man isn't nearly as rotten as the other people I've covered. I just wanted to include a holiday-themed tale in our lessons. I just love a theme. Marshall gathered several of his trusted friends in the town of Wichita Falls. All of them were down on their luck and looking for a way to make a quick buck before the holidays arrived. At this time in Texas, bank robberies were a very common occurrence. It is said that close to three to four bank robberies were occurring daily, prompting Texas to implement a shoot-to-kill policy for police and civilians regarding any robbers they witness. I have the same policy for people who don't use their turn signal. Don't worry, I'm only shooting disappointing looks from my eyes. Knowing he would be recognized, Marshall came up with the plan of disguising himself as jolly old Saint Nick. I mean, who would be suspect of Santa walking around town and into a bank that close to Christmas? It worked, too. On December 23rd, Ratliff, along with three accomplices, stole a car from the neighboring town and the Santa suit from the owner of the boarding house they were staying at. The three men let Ratliff out a few blocks from the bank, and this part is kind of like a movie. It is truly unbelievable. He walked a few blocks, along with all the numerous shoppers, filled with the holiday spirit. With a smile on his face, he greeted people, answered children's questions, and patted them on the head. He drew so much attention that a small crowd of children began to follow him, making his way to an alley to regroup with his pals. The children continued to follow him, even as far as going into the bank with him. Little did they know they were about to receive some real emotional damage. Dr. Lipschitz, line one. Dr. Lipschitz, line one. Marshall walked into the bank and ignored two greetings from, Hello, Santa! from one of the tellers. Shortly after, his accomplices entered, brandishing their guns. Ho, ho, ho! Give me your money! Ratliff went behind the counter and began filling his sack with all that he could before forcing a teller to open up the vault. 
Unknown to the robbers, a mother and her daughter entered the bank behind them to see Santa. She pushed her way into the bookkeeping office of the bank and she managed to escape with her daughter, safe, through an alleyway door, even with the men threatening her. Those maternal instincts were thriving in that woman. She then ran to the police station screaming, and within minutes, the police and townspeople were all aware of the robbery. This is where it takes an even more theatrical turn. This next part, I think, is the most Texas thing I've ever heard. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. It's just, if no one told me this happened in Texas and I read this, I'd be like, oh, that must be Texas. (laughs) Police quickly surrounded the building, guarding all the entrances. Ratliff saw them and fired a warning shot at a window and into the ceiling informing officers that they were indeed armed and ready for a fight. Backup was coming, though, for the police, and soon armed citizens began to aid them in their defense. Even those who didn't happen to bring their guns Christmas shopping. Like what? That's weird? The unarmed civilians ran into the local hardware and gun shops and borrowed weapons, further enforcing the strength of the defense. I had to make sure this was all true, because to me it gives me Home Alone villain vibes. Like, I'm just waiting for one of the robbers to grab an electrified doorknob or something. Over 100 bullets were fired between the thieves and the crowd of mixed civilians and officers. Marshall and his gang then forced all of the people out of the bank and managed to use them to shield them into the alleyway. As they got closer to their getaway car, the hostages seized the opportunity to run. All but 12 and 10-year-old girls named Laverne Comer and Emma Mae Robertson managed to flee. The men took the girls hostage and made it the rest of their way to their car. By the time the robbers were fleeing, they had managed to fatally wound two officers and shoot several other civilians. Ratliff had suffered from two wounds, one to his chin, the other to his leg. One of his accomplices was severely wounded. After all of their planning for the robbery, it worked. They had thought of everything, but one little detail. As they were fleeing and nearing the edge of town, their car ran out of gas. (laughs) They forgot to fill up the petrol tank beforehand. I mean, you just can't make this stuff up. They then stopped alongside the roadside and guns out forced a passing car to stop. They then made 14-year-old Woodrow Wilson Harris get out of the vehicle, and move the loot, guns, and hostages, all while dodging police bullets while they were hot on their trail. When they had finally transferred themselves to the new getaway car, only then did they realize that they could not start the car because Harris had cleverly taken the keys from the ignition when ordered to stop and get out. One of the accomplices who was shot was by then unconscious, So they left him in the car and moved back to the first one with their two hostages. Robert Hill, the one who had followed Ratliff into the bank, was struck by a rifle bullet during the aborted transfer to Harris's car. The now three robbers took off in the first car with their guns and the girls. They didn't realize until later, though, that they had left the money in the second vehicle with their unconscious accomplice. (laughs) The mob made it to the second car. The robber was then taken to the hospital, where he would later die from his wounds. They had stolen about $12,400 in cash and $150,000 in non-negotiable securities. Estimates were that they made at least 200 bullet holes, 
in the bank, a number many thought was way too low. Besides the two police officers, six townspeople had been wounded in the shootout, but no one was sure whether the robbers or the mob members were responsible. Bullets were just flying everywhere in all directions. The thieving trio took off and found a dirt road. Still being chased, they began to throw nails out of the windows in an attempt to puncture the tires on the squad cars. They then turned into a pasture, dashing through cactus, mesquite, and scrub oak. The growth became so heavy, though, that further progress just wasn't possible, and the robbers abandoned their bullet-riddled car and the two hostages several miles from town and continued the escape on foot. Don't forget, they, at this point, have no hostages, and they left the money in. (laughs) Officers and citizens poured in from all that section of the state, and a manhunt that western Texas had never seen before was soon in progress. Many members of the posse were on horseback or on foot as they beat their way through clumps and trees, searched high grass in the bottoms of ravines, and peered around boulders and canyons. The pursuit continued throughout the weekend. One of the results of the crime was its tragic implications for little children in Eastland County. On Christmas Eve, a church in Eastland was filled, and as jolly St. Nicholas entered, a little boy called out with a quiver in his voice, Santa Claus, why did you rob that bank? When the bandits wrecked their car in Putnam, they then successfully commandeered a vehicle driven by Carl Wiley a young driller, forcing him as their hostage to drive. During the seizure, though, Mr. Wiley's father fired his shotgun after the fleeing car, but the bullet had struck his son. After hiding out all night with nothing to eat but oranges, which they did not offer to the injured young hostage, the three men decided to return to Cisco to hide in plain sight. They released Wiley and his car and stole another, The wounded bandits, especially Ratliff, were doing very poorly due to their injuries, lack of food, and the icy sleeting conditions. The three of them were ambushed the next morning by the sheriff in the little town of Young County. As they tried to cross the Brazos River, officers spotted the single-seated machine with three occupants approaching. The driver caught sight of a gun in the hands of one of the officers and began backing rapidly down the road. Then, as the members of the posse scurried into their automobiles, the car whirled and rushed away. A car chase followed with a shootout in an oil field as the three tried to escape, running towards the wells. A deputy fired once and one of the fugitives fell. The bandits ran on, firing back over their shoulders. Again, a deputy shot and a man went down but arose and staggered on. The officer shoved the other shell into the gun and shot again, and the third accomplice slumped to his knees but got up and kept going, disappearing among the derricks. Ratliff was hit and fell to the ground while the other two men, although wounded, escaped into the woods by the river. Ratliff was bearing no fewer than six gunshot wounds and six pistols when captured, including one he took from the bank. Santa had been caught. The other two robbers were finally captured on December 30th. Ratliff was convicted of armed robbery on January 27, 1928, and was also sentenced to 99 years in prison. Months later, on March 30th, he was sentenced to execution for his role in the deaths of the policemen. Ratliff appealed his case, and when that failed, he began behaving oddly in hopes of an insanity plea. 
He began acting insane on the day of one of the robber's executions. His mother even filed for a lunacy hearing. The civilians of Eastland County were beginning to lose their patience after they learned that he had not been executed for his deeds, and they were further aggravated by this new development. A judge in the town ordered Ratliff to be extradited to Eastland County Jail, writing a bench warrant for armed robbery of the Harris Oldsmobile. On November 18th, while awaiting execution there, Ratliff faked being paralyzed, convincing his jailers Patrick Kilborn and Tom A. Jones, forcing the two men to provide him with his activities of daily living, making them bathe him, help him eat and move, and they had to toilet him as well. Having duped the two jailers, the man who had played Santa managed to get a hold of a six-shooter off the desk. He fatally wounded Jones and violently fought the second jailer in hand-to-hand combat. Fortunately for Kilborn, he had missed. Most of the town, including the fighting jailer's daughter, watched helplessly through the jail windows, unable to break open the steel door to help Kilborn as he pinned Ratliff down, beat him into unconsciousness, then returned him to his cell. Well, a huge and angry crowd began to gather the next morning, and by nightfall it had grown to nearly 2,000 people, all clamoring for Ratliff. Kilborn refused their demand, but was overpowered by 15 to 20 men who rushed in and dragged Ratliff out. They tied his hands and feet, carrying him into a vacant lot behind the local Majestic Theater on Mulberry Street, where, get this, the play The Noose was being presented. There, they threw a rope over a wire between two telephone poles, on which they intended to hang him. The first attempt to hang him failed when the knot came loose, and he fell to the ground. The second time, however, they used a stronger rope, and they were successful. His last words were, Forgive me, boys, before he was hoisted 15 feet in the air. He was pronounced dead 20 minutes later at 9.55 p.m. on November 19th. His last accomplice died later that evening, bringing the total number of dead as a result of the Santa Claus bank robbery, including the three bank robbers, to six. Ratliff's family took possession of the body and arranged for a funeral in Fort Worth. Many people in Cisco over the years have claimed to have been present at the robbery or related to someone who was, and it is now a part of the local folklore. Well, well, well. This Santa and his helpers were dead and all over nothing. Remember when they left the money in the second car? My heavens. I hope you all have enjoyed this special holiday episode of Rotten to the Core, and thank you for joining me. Now, be good, because the real Santa really does see everything. I mean, who do you think I got my magic mirror from? Just don't ask how. Faithful listeners who are dear to us can tune in to us next year. (laughs) I wish you all an extremely happy holidays wherever you are listening from, whatever your beliefs are. Enjoy your friends and family, or even if you're just taking it easy and chilling alone this year. Less stress, believe me. Oh, And Happy New Year, my darlings.
What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.